0: So imagine, uh, imagine Ruby is a little older and you're sitting down with her and you're giving her advice about what, what her life is about. What would you say to her? What, what's really important in life, little Ruby? If you're going to flourish and grow up to be a gorgeous, beautiful, wonderful, successful human being. Maybe you've had that conversation with your, your own kids. Maybe you have that conversation with your grandkids. Maybe you have that conversation with yourself. What 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 do you really need to, what is, to, to do to succeed? What is in the common parlance? You know, what does it take uh, to flourish as a human being? We're all not human flourishing these days, aren't we? Uh, so what is... What does it mean to flourish as a human being? I find thinking about the advice I give my kids really brings it into focus. You know, um, I suspect, uh, I suspect most of us would say things that would go along the lines of, um, you know, um, study hard, do your best. You can do whatever you want to do as long as you really work at it. Get a good job. Marry well. Give me some high-achieving grandkids. Earn enough money to support me in my old age. (laughs) Make sure that you floss every day. You know, I mean, all these kinds of stuff, right? Live well. Is that that what we, you know, need to flourish? I find it very interesting. In In Corinth... We looked at this last week. I must confess I was pretty sick last week with the flu, so I can't remember much of what I said. Um, but but I do remember what I said was this, that actually Corinth was quite similar to Sydney. Uh, successful, entrepreneurial, a, a young city, about 100 years old, people making lots of money, people flocking to Corinth to get ahead. And so the kind of advice you would have got in Corinth... What does it mean to flourish in Corinth? It's the sort of advice that we give ourselves and our young people today. We'd say to them, you know, you've got to get ahead. You've got to succeed. You've got to work. You've got to make money. You've got to make something of yourself. Uh, Preach the gospel of individualism, consumption, self-reliance. Pursue status. You know, go for it. Live for a harbor view. I mean, in Corinth, there were two harbors. So, you know, increase the likelihood, you know, but, you know, You've got to make something of yourself, right? Um, and, and the Corinthian Christians, uh, while they'd become followers of Jesus, were still struggling because they were caught up in that value system. And they still, while they were following Jesus, they were following Jesus in Corinth, so they were still individualistic, competitive, status-oriented, money-focused, Working to get ahead, always working the angles, into relentless self-promotion. Completely unlike us today. I never find in my own heart that I'm a follower of Jesus, but actually the way I live is not that different from my friends around Roselle. It's a little different, but how different really? How do we raise our kids? What are the values we're passing on? And, And this passage raises this in very stark forms. See, Paul is wanting to set up a framework to help address some of the divisions in the church and the conflict. And the way he's going to do that is by is really by overturning all the values and the, um, the things that the Corinthian culture valued and cherished. And he's going to do that for us as well if we'll let him. Um, so, it, and the passage we're looking at breaks out into three easy sections. Three sections. They're not easy. Three sections. Uh, and and the first bit is we're going to look at how the the message itself that Paul brings is stupid. It's foolish. It's moronic. The Greek uses. So so we've got a a foolish, dumb message. It's the first point. The second point is we've got a very inadequate low-status, screwed-up bunch of recipients of the message. That is the church. They're pretty inadequate, not very impressive. And then the third thing we're going to see is the messenger himself was no great, you know, not much chop either. So you've got a weak messenger, a very deficient bunch of recipients, and a moronically stupid message. Sounds encouraging? And yet... What Paul's going to do with each of these things, he's going to go, yeah, it's a weak message, it's a stupid message, and yet, it's actually the power of God. He says, you're a very inadequate, screwed up, ordinary bunch of people, and yet, you have glory. And then he's going to say, you know, I was a very, very, very average messenger, and yet, the message came with power to change the world. So that's what we're going to look at. Let's have a look at how it starts. A very, very foolish message that the gospel is. For the message uh, or the proclamation of the cross is foolishness. It's moronic. To those who are perishing, or one way of translating the Greek, is on their way to ruin. Uh, But to us who are being saved or on their way to salvation, it's the power of God. So there's really, here's the message of the cross. Here's the cross and uh, at a very human level this is this is moronic it's actually the greek word behind it uh, it's really dumb right it's really really a very dumb message uh because look um uh the greek the jews it's dumb for the jews right uh jewish people at the time uh were demanding signs now we can let's let's think about what sort of signs they were after what was the the most power what was the central act of god saving the jewish people in their history what's the most and even today what's the most important event they celebrate the exodus passover So your whole national identity is caught up in God doing this amazing thing for you. And what was it? Like they're in Egypt, they're slaves, they're oppressed, they're under a foreign power. And then God comes through with sign after sign after sign, 10 of them, amazing signs, incredible, extraordinary. And then he rescues them. The Egyptians let them go and then they're toddling along. And then what does God do? Ooh, they come to the Red Sea. They're all going to drown. Oh, the Egyptians are behind. What's going to happen? God miraculously passed the Red Sea. They go through. The Egyptians get killed. Then they get into the desert. And they, oh, what's going to happen now? We don't have compasses. We don't have GPS. Google Maps hasn't rolled out yet. What does God do? He shows up. Incredible sign. Pillar of cloud during the day to guide them. Fire at night. He's in their face. He's there for them. He's rescuing them. He's delivering them. He's throwing the horse and rider into the sea. He's bringing them into the promised land. It's amazing. Right, 1500 years later, they're still slaves. They're back in Israel, but they're under the oppressive Roman regime. And what are they looking for? So they come on, God, you did it then, do it again. Come, throw these Romans out. Come in power. And there were all these messianic people who'd pop up all over the show. Leaders would say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm the Messiah. Come follow me, and we'll overthrow the Romans. We'll bring in the kingdom of God." And, and one after one, man, they all got killed. They all got killed. And then Jesus comes along. And what happens to him? Oh, he gets killed. And then Paul comes along and he says, guess what, guys? This message that I'm bringing you, this announcement that God is at work and that God has come to save the world, uh, what's this message all about? Christ crucified that's like a contradiction in terms. It's like a drug free Olympic athlete. Sorry, I just had to slip that in. I thought, you know, just, why not, you know, offend everyone? It's a contradiction in terms. Like a, you know, I don't know, a humble politician, you know, a self effacing YouTuber. Uh, you know, these things just don't work. Contradictions in terms. A crucified Messiah was a contradiction. That's not what the Jews wanted. Nuts. If you got crucified, it was a sign that you'd failed. And Paul comes in and goes, well, here's my message, fellas. The Messiah you've been looking for and who's going to rescue you from Roman oppression and make all things right actually got crucified. Really? That's dumb. Now, the Greeks, and he was preaching to a lot of them, the Gentiles, they were after wisdom. They were very smart people. They didn't, they, didn't need, they didn't need science so much. They wanted to understand the world. These are the, these are the great grandkids of Aristotle and Plato. And they prided themselves on their deep insight into how the world worked. I mean, phenomenal brains. I mean, really, you know, uh, it's been said that all of Western intellectual history is really just a footnote to Plato, I mean, these guys understood, and that's what they valued, understanding the way the world worked, getting their heads around it, and and, and getting ahead by understanding it and being able to persuade others and explain others, explain this to others. And in this super sophisticated intellectual environment, Paul comes in, here's our message fellas. Here's the thing. Here's here's the most profound insight into all of created reality. Here's the single unifying truth that will open up all knowledge for you. And guess what it is? The Creator God was crucified for you. So that's not very smart, Paul. That's not very sophisticated. I mean, really, it isn't. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever read any Plato or Aristotle, it's hard going.
1: It's really high. And they're very,
0: very incredibly sophisticated thinkers. And then Paul goes, well, actually, the truest truth, the wisest wisdom, the realest reality that you can know is that the creator God of the universe was crucified for you. That's not very impressive. That's not very impressive. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness. It's moronic to the Gentiles, isn't it? Um, And yet, and yet, Paul says, listen, this is actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The central claim of Christianity is that there is no Christ but Christ crucified. There is no God but God crucified. This, and, and this is unthinkable to most folk. Um, we, we, it just doesn't make sense. I do a bit of speaking around topics of leadership and so on. I teach a leadership course at a university. And, and over the years, I've tried, as I've done this, to talk a lot about Jesus as a, as a great example of leadership. And Jesus is a, a great this and that and the other thing. And, and it's all great until, with one problem. It all falls apart when you get to his death. Because, like, he was a great moral leader, except he got killed. <laughs> he was a great leader of a movement that changed the world, except he got killed. And at that point, folk in the corporate world and in the universities find it offensive and unthinkable. And, and yet, Paul says, there is something going on that in this death of Jesus, in the moment of what, on a worldly sense, is absolute utter weakness, that's when God was most powerfully acting. To save the world. Isn't that amazing? But think about it. I was thinking a lot about this this week. Uh, isn't, if there is an all-powerful being in the world, isn't it tremendously reassuring that that being's power is exercised in something like the cross? You say, huh? Think about this. Raw power, absolute power is actually terrifying. Because how do we know if that power is is actually going to be good for us or is going to crush us? You know, how do we know that God is both powerful and loving and good? We all, you know, we all say, "Well, we want," you know, "this is this is appalling." You know, how could God be and back? The Greeks would sort have of said, and the and the Jews, you know, that God can't possibly be like this. I want to flip it around and say, I think it's, I actually think this is the kind of God we want to exist, even if we're not sure there is a God. What do I mean by that? That that the God who is all-powerful is also the God who loves us enough to show his power by dying for us. Isn't that the sort of power we really long to see exercised in the world? Not a power that crushes. Not a power that coerces. Not a power that comes with military force to overrule our wills and subjugate us and make us slaves again, but a power that is exercised in weakness and in dying for, for its enemies. I mean, I don't know where you're at spiritually, but even if you don't believe in God, isn't this, isn't this the kind of God that you would want to not believe in? <laughs> if there is a God, isn't this the kind of God that would just be wonderful if they existed? This kind of power, but power wrapped up in the cross. And in doing that, reverses everything our world thinks about, wisdom and power. Of course, it's not obvious, is it? I mean, uh, it all depends on our perspective. One of our problems in Sydney, as it was in Corinth, is many, many, many of our friends, and maybe even us, are actually on our way to ruin. We just don't know it yet. We're lost. But the problem with being lost is you're typically lost long before you know you're lost. Isn't that right? I mean, that, And Google Maps has helped with that. But back in the good old days, you know, when you used to have like a Gregory's or a UBD on the, on the side there and you'd be driving around Sydney and you'd be trying to figure out where you're going and, you'd, and I'm really spatially a little challenged and I'd try and read the map and I'd think, okay, I've got to go, you know, da da da, da 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 And you'd, you'd make a few turns and you drive and you'd drive and you'd suddenly go, hang on, I'm completely lost. But I was lost long before I knew that. In fact, it happened just the other day. I was taking Oliver to a football match, and I, I was using uh, Google Maps, and I, I'd looked up the <laughs> place first, and oh yeah, were, then I'd got in the car, and I'd just gone to Google Maps, and I pulled the drop-down menu, and I'd gone not to the destination we were supposed to go, but to the one that had come up below on the memory, and I plugged that in. For 20 minutes, we were lost. Uh, it only took the last five minutes when I'm like, hang on, why are we pulling up at? trinity grammar when we should be at Homebush. this doesn't seem right i'd been lost for 20 minutes at that point our culture doesn't get this very often and we struggle don't we because we're actually on the way to ruin even though we're doing it with harbor views and academic success and fully funded superannuation funds and uh, great health care and you know wonderful places to retire and grow old we're, because, because here's the thing, right? Um, f- it's all about the timing. Like with any investment decision, the, the horizon is very important. So if you're investing for five years, that's going to be different if you're investing for 45 years, I'm told. Um, it's the same with our lives. If, if, if we measure our lives just over the next 40 years, just till we die, then we don't even realize we're lost. And in fact, on those terms, we might be doing pretty well. But what if, what if the Bible's right, and death is just the beginning of a life that comes after that? What if death isn't the end? What if this life is, in one sense, a preparation for the next billion years? You know, for the, like, a, like in a billion years, let me tell you, your harbor view and your status and your success and your career and your self-promotion is really a path to ruin, Whereas following Jesus, according to the Bible, actually, even if it takes you out of your wealth and out of your status and into a place of downward mobility, that's actually the path to to being healed and to salvation. Because in a billion years, Jesus will have given you everything you long for and more and made the world right and true and beautiful. But it's hard to get I get that. It's really hard for us to understand. It's hard. was hard in Corinth. It's hard in our culture to see that the message of the cross, like a crucified Jew, is actually the hope of the world. That's tough. So you might think, well, okay, so the message is a bit dumb, but at least the church is really impressive. Let's rely on that, right? Uh-uh. Verse 26 through 31, look at this. Brothers and sisters. <laughs> I, you, you think of... You, paul's being very nice to them brothers and sisters think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards not many were influential not many were of noble birth you were a pretty average bunch of people just average now it's true listen um there were rich influential powerful people in the early church so don't hear me and don't hear paul um Idolizing poverty, or middle classness, or mediocrity, and and slagging off on the on the powerful and the influential. They were in the church, and God used them significantly. But He says, you know, most of you were just average man. You were not high status. You were not of noble birth. You you were just a pleb, just average. I used to, um, when our kids were little much younger, in a suburb in Melbourne, we were running a church, not too dissimilar to here. I would really annoy parents sometimes. I'd say, listen, man, because everyone's anxious. We live in a knowledge economy uh, where your standard of living it correlates to your intellectual firepower and how you can harness that to, to make money. And so well, parents are always relentlessly anxious that their little dears are going to be you know, intellectually brilliant and wonderful. And I'd always go, man, listen, it's a, intellect is distributed on a standard distribution, so most of our kids are just average. Like, we all like to think they're up at the pointy end. we all like, to think, oh, my kid's up at the pointy end. Mate, Nah, most of us, you know, within one standard, our kids are within one standard deviation of the mean. We are, we're average. And that would really be very disconcerting for status-obsessed, money-obsessed, um, you know, intellectually firepower-obsessed Melburnians. I know here in Sydney, we, none of us struggle with this at all. Um, I know we never have conversations like this at school. Um, but Paul says it's Okay guys, church, you're very average. <laughs> um, but that's okay because guess what God is in the process of doing? In the same way that the message seemed stupid but was actually the power of God. So the church seems weak and inadequate, full of very ordinary people, but what's God in the process of doing? He's in the process of giving us glory in Christ. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, and being in Christ Jesus, uh, we have righteousness, holiness, and redemption, and we get glory. What Paul says is what the gospel does, what Jesus Christ gives for us, is he gives us an identity and a value and a purpose that is not based on anything in us, but that is a gift to us. So Jesus is our righteousness. He says, you know what? You can't, Jesus is the one who puts everything that's broken and misshapen in your life back together. He heals your relationship with God. He heals your relationship with other people. That's what he does for you. And he's your holiness. That is, Jesus is the one who actually transforms your character, gives you the power to live like Jesus, to love the poor, to serve the poor, to forgive other people, to live a life that makes a difference in the world. And then Jesus is your redemption. Now, what does that mean? Technical phrase. To redeem someone is to buy them back out of slavery. And you go, but I'm not a slave. And you go, yes, you are. We are slaves to ourselves. We're slaves to, this, to, the, 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 to our employers, to the constructs of this world that value status. We can't say no to getting ahead to that extra pay, to that extra promotion. We're slaves to creating ourselves. This is the tremendous pressure we're under, as the Corinthians were. When your identity and your value is intrinsic to yourself, You're a slave to yourself. I've got to make my life work. I've got to get ahead. I've got to climb over some people. I've got to construct a sense of self that will make me feel valuable and will last. And it's a crushing burden and a terrible slavery. And you know what? It's got worse in our culture. We wonder why Uh, there is this massive amount of anxiety and depression amongst our young people. I mean, and our old, but particularly amongst our young. I'll tell you why. You were met, we're, it, it's even worse than when some of us were young. Our kids are now told, you've, you've got this grand project of creating yourself. You can be anything, as long as it's high status and successful and wealthy and blah, blah, blah. And attractive. Our, our, our young people have to live under the slavery of making something of themselves. And you know what? Uh It's crushing. It's like any slavery. Paul says the great news is in the gospel, this crucified Jew, Jesus, will give you a glory, a self, that you don't have to make or earn or achieve. Give you a glory. This is what it says uh, in verse 31. As it is written, let the one who glories glory in the Lord. Now, what does glory mean? It's like if, you're gonna, if you want your full humanity given to you, find it in Jesus not in your own accomplishments or achievements. Isn't that liberating? For all of us who've ever thought, I'm not smart enough. For all of us who've ever thought, I'm not good-looking enough, I'm not skinny enough, I'm not athletic enough. For all of us who've ever thought, I've just not achieved as much as you know," I wish I had. For all of us who've ever gone on Facebook and looked at the wonderful glorious lives that our friends are leading or gone on LinkedIn and seen how unbelievably impressive everybody else is and you just say, oh, I'm not enough. You say, no, you're not enough, but Jesus is enough and he gives us glory in him. It's inclusive. It means... This massive reversal, we weren't very much in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, we have this great glory that comes to us from Jesus. And isn't that wonderful? Whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're intellectually handicapped, whether you're in utero, whether you've got Alzheimer's and your your mind is is slowly being taken from you in a nursing home, you have glory in Christ given to you extrinsically by him. Isn't that wonderful, freeing, glorious truth? Even though we're all on a bell curve and some of us are... Down the other end. (laughs) Uh, Really hard for us here in this church to believe this, I think. Much like the Corinthian church. Because actually, to be honest, even though I bagged out people in Melbourne, the truth of the matter is, hey, many of us actually do exist at this end of the bell curve. In this church. That's a wonderful thing. Praise God. The real temptation is we start to think that's what really matters really doesn 't in terms of ultimate identity, it comes from Jesus, and in fact, one of the problems we 'll see is what the Corinthian letter goes on uh, is lots of divisions in church come when people 's identity is based on their position on the bell curve because <laughs> I start to value people around what they can give me and status and power within the church, not around hey what jesus gives me so that 's a, that's a bit of a problem. The final thing though, if you know, so the message is, the message is foolish but actually powerful, the church. It's very inadequate, very average, and yet glorious. And the messenger, very unimpressive, and yet world-changing. And so it was. So Paul, very disarming. So it was with me. I was just like you guys, just ordinary Um, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He says, yeah, I just... You know, into the sophisticated, power and status-hungry Corinthian context, full of super-smart philosophers and rhetoricians, Paul comes and he goes. You know what, fellas? I'm no Anthony Robbins. I'm no Bill Clinton. I'm nothing much. I don't. I really don't have much to say except hey, listen, at the center of the universe is this amazing message that the creator God was crucified for you, and he rose again, and you should trust him. That's what he came to tell people. It's not very impressive. And he didn't dress it up particularly well. He just, simple message. He said, that's all I did. I came and I told people that, 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 and I told people that. It's interesting. I had a brief moment of glory a few years ago passing moment of glory in Canada in my first year there I uh, went to a clergy conference Diocese of Toronto great great bunch of people and as I arrived the bishop Grandma Mark Mark I'm going to speak to you okay I'm oh, sure first session was going to be a panel discussion and they're classic Anglican and you know we had a they had this panel talking about the future leaders of the church what do we need going to the future as a diocese and, and they were trying to keep everyone happy you know it's a big tent to Anglicanism um, full of a bunch of monkeys uh, anyway and, and they, they said we've got to have we've got to have the kind of hardcore liberal sort of you know end of the church got to have the sort of the, the Catholic Anglo-Catholic part of the church and then oh, we'd better get a sort of evangelical conservative guy. Now um the evangelical fella, who's a wonderful, wonderful man, runs a wonderful church in the, in the center of Toronto. At the last minute, his his son got really ill, so he couldn't come to the conference. So the bishop says to me, uh, Mark, would you, with half an hour's notice, would you like to be on this panel? You've got to do a 10 minute talk to 300 clergy about the future of leadership in the diocese. My brief moment of glory. Uh, it was extraordinary. It was a wonderful thing. I stood up. And with my boyish South African-Australian Jewish charm and wit, I looked at them and, uh, and I said, listen, um, here's the thing. Here's what we need to know about leaders in the diocese. I said, fellas and ladies, uh, that was a mistake to start with. I said, we've only got, here's the thing about leaders, leaders for the future. We need to realize we've only got one horse in the race. That was my second problem because Canadians don't gamble nearly as much as Australians and I but I think they got the idiom. I said guys we've only got one horse in the race. The leaders of the future, we need to understand that. The only horse we're backing in this race is the Jesus horse. We can't we can't we can't back institutional status anymore. We can't back being part of the cultural elite anymore. We can't back fancy dress. You know, dressing like mother and getting called father. We can't we can't back you know, 17th century church music. We can't back anything. We've got to, you know, we're all in on Jesus or we're not in at all. It's only one horse in the race for Paul. I mean, he could have competed as an intellectual. He was probably smarter than most of the folk. They're one of the great intellects of our civilization. He could have competed as a, as a rhetorician. He certainly wrote very well. But he just said, I've got one horse in the race and it's Jesus. I'm just going to tell people about Jesus. And guess what? Guess what? That really simple message had enormous power. It came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that the faith of these people didn't rest on human wisdom but on God. What happened as a result of Paul's simple message of Jesus? Well, he changed the world. 300 years after this was written, the whole Roman, or the majority of the Roman Empire, was Christian. The power of this message changed the world. In all the sophisticated urban centers and in the countrysides of the Roman Empire, the the culture was changed by, you know, a wandering Jew telling the story of a crucified Jew. 300 years later, the status of women had been transformed in the Roman Empire. 300 years later, abortion rates had plummeted. 300 years later, the demographics had changed as young girls were no longer left. Baby infant girls were left to die because because people like Paul had told people that at the heart of the universe was a crucified God and that this changed everything. And so it transformed the social structures. The role of slaves was changed. Transformed cities the way the elderly were cared for, the weak and the vulnerable and the sick. So it worked. Who would have thought? You double down on Jesus and it works. You and I are here because this message has power, right? So for us going forward, listen, um, it's really easy for us here to rely on our, you know, we're at the pointy end of the curve. We're rich, a lot of us. We're educated, a lot of us. Some of us have fairly high status jobs um, and we can trust those things. We can think this is what's going to change the world or change the city and be a blessing to the city of Sydney. It's not. What's going to be a blessing to the city of Sydney is a bunch of people going around telling the city that at the heart of the universe is this amazing story of a dead Jew who rose from the dead and is coming back to give life and will change the world. And why don't you follow him? (laughs) And then teasing out the implications of that for the role of women and the poor and the vulnerable and so on and what happens when we do that is that our faith is in God not in human wisdom or institutions and oh my goodness isn't that important I mean there's lots, like the church is a mess right well maybe not our church, our church is fantastic sinless Um, Newcastle diocese just north of us, what a mess cesspool of evil and yet, what changes the world is actually not the human institutions, but the message of the crucified Jew at the heart of those. I learned this. I don't know. For me, I find none of this, this is so obvious. And I guess I had the mixed blessing of finding this out very young. Some of you have heard a bit of this story. But let me tell you how I found it out. As a young Jewish South African boy, I'd never been to a Protestant church. And I came to know Jesus through this little dysfunctional youth group. And they didn't even put the fun in dysfunctional. I mean, it really was a mess, you know. They'd, like... You know, 20, 30 kids and a bunch of screwed-up leaders, Uh, you know, the one guy who'd led the the group for 20 years, you know, he'd been abusing teenage boys all that time. Eventually, they got rid of him, and and they replaced him with a a young adult woman. She was very charismatic, very lovely, very voluptuous, and, you know, and she was sleeping with the teenage boys. So I guess that was a bit of an improvement, Um, and, and that went on. Uh, you know, that went on, that kind of abuse, until eventually one of the elders of the church got her pregnant, and his wife wasn't that happy with that, so she moved up north, and the youth group kind of, and that's where I became a Christian. I, and then I'd just become a Christian, and I'm at, I'm at a dinner party. I was, you know, kind of this, I always had, those. this will surprise you, but I've always had opinions about stuff, right? So... I'm this kind of liberal Jewish Cape Town white guy. I've just become a Christian. I'm in this church, and this is—I soon discovered this is a church that thought apartheid was a really good idea. So I'm at this dinner party, at church, you know, like we have those dinner gatherings where you sort of randomly, and we had one of those. So I'm—I'm I'm this new believer. I'm—I'm I'm at university, and I'm in there, and I'm and I'm with one of the elders of the church, and he and I get into a stand-up argument. I can still remember Neil at the end of the table with his coffee cup over dinner yelling at me and banging his cup on the table because didn't I know that it was clear that blacks were less intelligent than whites and it was a biblical Christian mandate for whites as an act of love to govern and rule the blacks and anyone who thought else anything else was just stupid... And I'm, he's yelling at me, and I'm going, what the? And this was the church that I came to Christ in, racist and full of perverts. Great blessing for me is my faith rests in God. <laughs> like he's, that message of a crucified Jew changed my life. That's what it's about. I mean, the human institutions just come and go. Our faith needs to rest in God because the gospel comes with power and it changes us. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I find that so exciting about the city of Sydney. Say, because you know what? We are average. We can't, we're never going to be a perfect church. But the same God who came uh, through weak, trembling Apostle Paul and, and with a message of a crucified Jew, that same God is at work in us and through us and God still wants to use us to change the world. Not because we're impressive, but because we tell people about an amazing saviour who died for them and rose again for them. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Stupid message that ended up turning out to be the power of God. An inadequate church that ended up being full of glory. Amazing, given their identity in Jesus. And then a messenger who was so inadequate but yet changed the world that's us wow (laughs) why don't you double down on jesus i mean what would it be like for us as a church if we just said yeah that's it it's all about jesus pretty simple and then if we had the courage to believe that god could use even you and me in this world to tell others this foolish message that'll change their lives let's pray Oh, Lord God, I thank you that you love us so very much, and I pray that you will uh, have mercy on us and, uh, and, and help us hold on to Jesus and, uh, and hold on to him and, and tell others about him, not because we're great or smart or super spiritual, but because he is a wonderful, extraordinary, glorious, beautiful Savior. Oh, Jesus, I pray for our church that you will help us to, to just back you to back you, not not our own wealth or intellect or status or position, but just you. And I pray for the city of Sydney that, just like Corinth, full of rich people, successful people, status-driven people, people who you know, are wonderful and glorious but tragically lost in all their wealth. Oh, Lord, open their eyes and help them to see that that the message of a dead, risen Jew is actually their only lasting, true hope in the world. And we pray that your church, in all its forms, all around the city of Sydney, will just let that message ring out. And we ask this in your great name, Lord, in the power of your spirit. Amen.